morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone Hello, everyone. My name is Leonie Hameson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School, on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. I have two guests today, Farah Despeigne, president of the Bronx Parent Leaders Advocacy Group, which is advocating for a remote option for students next year and also for better conditions in the public schools so that more parents will feel safe sending their kids back to school in the fall. My second guest is Ross Barkin, a political reporter who will talk about the citywide elections that took place yesterday and also about his book that just came out about Governor Cuomo. But first, a bit of news. The city budget is still in play and will be finalized within a week. On Friday, we released a new video about why class sizes should be reduced with the voices of parents, educators, experts like Diane Ravitch and former superintendent Kathy Cashin. I'll put the link to the video in the resources section of the podcast. But obviously, the big story on nearly everyone's mind right now are the primary elections that happened yesterday. In the mayor's race, Eric Adams came out on top with 31.7 percent of the vote, with Maya Wiley and Catherine Garcia, number two and number three, respectively, at 22.2 percent and 19.5 percent. But with ranked choice voting and as many as 100,000 absentee ballots yet to count, we won't know the final results for sure for several weeks. We'll talk about the results in a moment with political reporter Ross Barkin. But first, I'd like to introduce Farah Despeigne, president of the Community Education Council in District 8 and the current president of the Bronx Parent Leaders Advocacy Group. Hi, Farah. Thanks for joining us today. Hi. Thank you, Leonie. Thank you for having me. Now, your group had a press conference on Monday to present your concerns and demands. Is that right? Can you tell us what you said? Yes, so we had a press conference. So we are the Bronx Parent Leaders Advocacy Group. And um, we had a press conference uh, trying to uh, get the mayor and the chancellor to understand that remote, the remote option is actually very necessary for some parents, right? So we understand the concerns of the DOE in terms of uh, kids who did not do as well, but then also there are kids who did very well, right? Uh, we understand in terms of uh, you know, the pandemic maybe is ending and the numbers are down. Great, fabulous. But also there are parents who are hesitant to send their kids back um, because they've suffered, uh, you know, quite a bit of loss uh, during the pandemic. And you can't just, you know, push a magic button and have people be ready to reintegrate uh, in schools or re be reacclimated. We don't know the situations of those families and we have to respect where they are right now. And we, we just have to, and then we have to become more modern as a school system, right? Because we have the private sector talking about, you know, uh, giving workers um, the option of working at home and um, or going back to the office or having a hybrid model. And the DOE needs to understand that the same workers 
um, they have kids in the public school uh, system that may need the same accommodations for their children because that works best for their families. And their voices cannot be stifled or silenced just because the DOE thinks that's the best way to do things, maybe for principals, maybe for teachers, because you know what, at the end of the day, it's families at the center of that. It's children at the center of that. And the DOE does not have the right to tell parents how to raise their children and what is safer for their children. So for the parents who agree, this is the way to go. They need to go back in the school buildings. By all means, go back into the school buildings. But for the parents who have some kind of trepidation, whether it's concerning health issues or instructional issues, or just the fact that they feel that their voices need to be heard and, and they need to be taken into consideration and they want the remote option, let them have it. And, and the DOE needs to do the work uh, to get the staff together to, to get that work done, uh, you know, hire extra folks and then improve on remote learning. Just because it didn't work as well as it should have doesn't mean that they shouldn't spend the time to make it better and give those parents that choice. So can you describe the kind of kid um, that did actually better um, with remote learning and um, the concerns of parents who would like to keep their kids in remote learning, either for instructional or health reasons? Yes, so we have a group of parents who have come to us uh, talking about, you know, for example, that their, their kids maybe suffered from HDHD and couldn't focus in class. Uh, and they, they, they were concerned that, you know, before the pandemic, their kids were never getting the attention that they needed or the size class that they needed. But with the remote learning, they managed to keep their kids uh, really um, because they were, they were not classmates around, right? And other things happening in the class, those kids were able to focus more and, and actually uh, get their work done. And these parents are not, it's not like, you know, for them, they don't feel that it's because uh, the teachers are not counting the, you know, uh, are not grading properly or letting things slide. It's really because their children were able to focus and really delve into the work and their children did better. And we have parents who are reporting to us that um, maybe their child was uh, on some type of medication, like Ritalin or, or what have you, that they actually managed not to medicate the child because of fewer distractions in, uh, you know, because they were remote and that they didn't need to take medication. And those parents are quite happy with the fact that their children for the first time in years didn't need to take medication just to focus. So I, I think those points are valid. And we have parents who have kids who are immunosuppressed uh, um, what I'm looking for, uh, who are uh, immunosuppressed, yeah. thank you, from cancer or something else, and who feel like they don't want um, to return their kids into the in, into the classroom because not only their kids may be suffering from some kind of you know uh, major uh, medical condition, but there are other people in the house that maybe you know are suffering from other things and died from COVID. So you know, uh, or who suffered from COVID, like a lot of medical issues going on in that family. So they don't want their kids going into the buildings, and they don't want anybody coming into their homes for traditional homeschooling. And feel like the best way to protect the health of of their children and their extended family members is to actually keep that remote option in place. 
um, those families should have their voices heard and they should be able to make that decision because at the end of the day, the DOE cannot tell people how to live their lives. And then you have people who are reluctant concerning the vaccines uh, because they are not ready to vaccinate themselves and they're not ready to vaccinate their children. I'm not saying vaccines are good or bad. Um, you know, that's not for me to say. I'm only here to fight for parents. But if they are, if they are uncomfortable going back into the buildings because they are not vaccinated, and they are not ready to uh, to vaccinate their children yet, and they fear for the spread uh, of the virus, especially with um, the new Delta variant coming out. They have that right to make that decision and and be and go back into the buildings when they are ready. So the idea that you know one size fits all, uh, you know. Uh, one decision should somehow work for every family is absolute nonsense. And it is, you know, New York City is not an autocracy. It's not a dictatorship. And I think uh, the mayor needs to understand that. Unfortunately, the system of mayoral control is, is almost quite quite near a dictatorship the way it's designed, unfortunately. but Unfortunately, but parents in the Bronx are saying no more, no way, no how. Right. So there's another whole set of concerns and demands that you're making about how to change the conditions in the schools so more parents will be comfortable sending their kids back into the school buildings. Um, changes that need to be, happen both educationally and, and for health reasons. Do you want to discuss those? Yes. So first and foremost, we're demanding that uh, the ventilation system in every school. I know they say it, it's supposedly it's happening, but we've heard that before, right? And uh, so what they say and what we see with our own eyes, you know, first of all, we need to be in the schools to verify, right? Uh, but sometimes, you know, the rhetoric does not match the actuality. So we parents want to be sure that it's true. Secondly, we, because of our fears, maybe we are right, maybe we are wrong, you know, speaking for parents, but they feel that, you know, social distancing should be a thing, uh, regardless of what the CDC says, because now it's not, a, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, the science may say one thing, but how people feel, because we all know in politics and in life, perception is reality. So if they feel that, you know, we need to keep that social distancing in place, regardless of, you know, what's going on out there, then it would be better for that to happen. And in terms of the buildings themselves, and uh, a lot of them cannot accommodate social distancing, whether it's three feet or six feet, that's a concern. And they are lifting, you know, all the, uh, all the restrictions from before. Parents feel like those masks, they need to stay on, right? And, and we need to make sure that all these measures in terms of uh, sanitizing the buildings and uh, all of those things need to stay in place. And, and of course, first and foremost, reduce, reduce uh, the size classes, the, the, class, the size of the classes, because that helps not only with instruction, but also making sure that uh, in terms of COVID, it's just a lot safer. Right. Um, the social distancing, I think the CDC is still recommending three feet of social distancing, though that may change. Yes. Um, the, the DOE has claimed that only 10 percent of schools won't be able to achieve three feet of social distancing next year. However, we did an analysis showing that more than half of, of kids could not attend school five days a week in person with three feet of social distancing because our class sizes are too large and most classrooms are too small. Yes. And the head of the principals union, Mark Canizaro, agreed 
and said that he doesn't believe the data that the the, the statistics that the DOE is putting out about only 10% of schools not being able to do social distancing. They have not released the names of those schools, and they have also not told parents um, which schools, if they can't do social distancing, they say they're going to create auxiliary spaces, um, perhaps at CBOs or other spaces nearby, but they haven't even told parents what those spaces will be. So I think that that um, contributes to a lack of trust. What do you think, Farah? No, absolutely, because, I mean, I think one of the things that we're always fighting with the DOE about is transparency. And we know in the Bronx, for sure, um, it, it's um, the social distancing that they are talking about is not happening because most of, the, most of our schools are not only co-located, but they're also overcrowded, yes. right? And, and not too long ago, we had a discussion with... Um, uh, you know, somebody high up in the DOE, and when they were talking about these other spaces that they may be offering, suddenly it became well. Maybe we're talking about community spaces like the gym and, and the and and um, the auditorium and stuff like that. And we all know uh, a lot of these spaces inside the schools, those community shared spaces inside the schools, they are not often well ventilated. I mean, we have so many auditoriums with no air conditioning. And on top of that, when you're thinking about other spaces, because in the Bronx, you you know, it's not like in some other spots in, in, in the country or in the city where parents feel that, you know, their kids can be, you know, outside of the school building and everything will be okay because the crime rate is going up. And there are parents who are concerned. Like if you're taking my child to a different space, a different neighborhood that I'm, I don't know about, that I don't know how safe it is, then I'm not willing to travel with my child or have my child travel you know, by himself or herself to go to the spaces where my child can get hit by a stray bullet or maybe caught in a, in a situation and uh, where people are fighting or whatever the situation is and, and people are getting hurt. So when they are thinking, uh, about community spaces, they're also not thinking how parents see that in a situation where they don't feel that the streets are as safe as they, you know, they were maybe pre-pandemic, because I do have to say that, you know, before the pandemic in terms of uh, crime, um, it, you know, it, it was doable. But right now, because of all the things that parents are reading and seeing on TV, they're also worried. And they don't necessarily want in the Bronx, we don't necessarily want our kids learning in parks um, because there's a whole other issues concerning not only bullets and, and what have you, but you also have, you know, we, we think about drugs and um, needles and, you know, different little things going on in those communities. And, and we need to instill in the DOE and the mayor, right, and the, New York, and the city council that you can't really have great schools unless you build communities and you also have great communities, right? Because that goes hand in hand. So invest in the schools, invest in the communities. So that when you wanna make changes and you wanna take chances, you can say to parents, I'm gonna do this and that. And parents can say, ah, I see it because you solve those other problems. Like, you know, I'm making sure that the community is safe, right? And making sure that the schools are, 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 more, are modernized. Right, so that when you say to me, my child is going to um, um, be next to another child during a pandemic, that I feel that you know because my school is big enough, it's not overcrowded, it's modernized, you know, with all the age back that we need, ah, my kid will be safe, just like you know some other schools in the city. Wait a second. Yeah. So um, 
one of the interesting things that happened this year is that there was a big push in advocacy for outdoor learning in some communities, especially in Brooklyn and the Upper West Side of Manhattan. But what other communities, sometimes in central Brooklyn and other parts of the city, the Bronx said, we don't want our kids doing outdoor learning because we don't think it's safe in a lot of these streets to and parks to take our kids for classes. So when that was really a, you know, a disparity that we saw across the city that I thought was really interesting. Um, I have another question for you. I mean, um, when my, when um, Bill de Blasio was elected, he really cast himself as a contrast to the previous mayor, uh, Michael Bloomberg, and said that he was going to be much more collaborative with parents and listen to their input and confer with them um, much more than Bloomberg, who was seen as this sort of autocratic figure. What has your experience been in the Bronx, um, in District 8, with um, our our, our are the three chancellors that we've had um, under Bill de Blasio, first Carmen Farina, then Richard Carranza, and now Misha Porter. Okay, so that's a very interesting question and a good question, right? Uh, so when I first met de Blasio, and we talked about it, and I have to, you know, uh, you know I'm a fair person, uh, de Blasio did uh, come around to the CCs in the city, and we did have town halls, and it seemed like at the beginning, he was really listening uh, to parents. Uh, but then there was a great, dis, uh, there was some type of dispar uh, disparity or discrepancy, uh, depending on how you're seeing it, uh, between what de Blasio seemed to be doing at the top and what Farina was doing, uh, you know, within the DOE, because um, Farina was really not approachable. Uh, like the way, I mean, I remember meeting Farina and the way, you know, she she shook hands, for example. It was just very dismissive, never looking at people in the eyes and never really uh, caring for uh, what parents had to say. So then it, it was no wonder that superintendent, uh, especially our superintendent in District 8, for example, uh, would follow in that path where, you know, she basically shut out parent uh, voice. Uh, but then when Carranza came on, it seemed like, you know, he was listening. So he was promising a lot of things and having a lot of open conversations with parents. But then it seemed like the rhetoric that he was speaking uh, seemed to be different from what um, de Blasio was pursuing. Uh, so that was weird as well. And then <laughs> you have... Uh, uh, Misha, who came in, uh, you know, Chancellor Porter, is uh, uh, really open and willing to speak to parents, like communication, communication, communication. And we believe that Misha, and I think we still do, right? Because she's still very new. And then suddenly they are making announcements without discussing with parents. So what, what happened here? But I can tell you that, you know, the analysis, uh, at least from a lot of parents, is that uh, the chancellors may be willing, except maybe for Farinia, who really, I think, was old school in the way she was thinking. But in terms of Kalanza and Porter, I think, at least in rhetoric, they seem really willing to work with parents. And parents are feeling like maybe the disconnect is coming from de Blasio and the politics around de Blasio, as opposed to the chancellors themselves. I don't know, because only Kalanza can tell us the truth and only Porter can tell us what's happening right now. Um, but I can tell you that at least with my own um, observation and my conversations with Porter, she's willing and she is gonna meet with the Bronx flag uh, with the Bronx Leaders, uh, apparently, this advocacy group next week. So 
I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. Well, thank you so much, Farah, for being with us today. I would love to hear about how your meeting with um, Chancellor Porter goes um, and whether they are going to allow for a remote option for parents and students um, for next year. And thank you so much for being our guest today on Talk Out of School. Thank you so much, Leonie, and thank you for pronouncing my name the way it's supposed to be pronounced. <laughs> well, I have a French name, too, so thank you oh, again. Yes. <laughs> Have a great day. You too. Okay. Um, Now I'd like to introduce Ross Barkin, who is the author of a new book, The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus in the Fall of New York, that was just released yesterday on June 22nd. Ross is an award-winning journalist who's written for The Guardian and Jacobin, as well as The Village Voice, The Nation, The Daily Beast, Gothamist. He has his own Substack newsletter as well that you can subscribe to called Political Currents. Thank you so much for being with us today, Ross. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. Yes, there's a lot of news to discuss. Um, first of all, what do you think of the primary results so far? Um, I think it's definitely a commanding performance for Eric Adams in the mayoral race. Uh, he holds a substantial lead. Ranked choice voting is probably going to narrow it. My my gut tells me Garcia is going to rise once that happens maybe um, ahead of Wiley. I just don't know if it's enough to win. I I think historically almost every RCV leader wins and the lead is big. I I think if the lead were not so big, if it were within a few percentage points, I would would think there would be a serious chance that Garcia could make inroads, but it's going to be hard. It'll be hard for her. So just on the mayoral side, it does look like Eric Adams is on the way to being the next mayor with the caveat that we have to count absentees and we have to count the RCV. So we'll know in July, but that's just my educated guess that he, he's in the driver's seat. And then I don't know the other races are interesting. You know, Brad Lander appears to have scored a, a big win in the controller's race. We'll know more when that's calculated, but he's well ahead. And, you know, Johnson had all the labor unions, but seemed to have run a lackluster campaign. Lander, in my opinion, ran great television ads and it had the AOC endorsement, which seemed to help a lot. Um, so that is a prominent progressive, you know, possibly in the controller's office, along with Jamani Williams, a prominent progressive in the public advocate's office. So you will have citywide progressives perhaps to counter or, you know, or work with uh, Eric Adams as mayor. And then the city council is just a wild card right now. You know, RCV will have to settle some of these races, but, you know, seems like, you know, a mix of, you know, some real progressive and left candidates are are going to win. Some outspoken moderates are entering the council as well. Um, I do think the city council is going to be more progressive than it was um, from 2013 till now. So that will be very notable as well if it's Mayor Adams and a very progressive city council, one that unlike with Mayor de Blasio is not going to take dictation from Mayor Adams. Remember, Bill de Blasio, when he won in 2013, really arrived with a lot of goodwill and there was a lot of deference paid to him. He really picked the first speaker, Melissa Mark Viverito. I don't see Eric Adams being able to engineer a speaker's pick, though he will certainly try uh, knowing him. Well, on the other hand, the council will have so many new people in them 
um, who are, you know, relatively inexperienced. Um, I think uh, almost two-thirds are, are, are turning over. And there are institutional reasons why the mayor has a lot of power compared to the city council. So we will, we will have to see about that. Um, Adams certainly acted last night like he was the winner. He gave a 40-minute, I believe, uh, really uh, amazing victory speech. Um, where he castigated reporters, especially young reporters, and I assume you were you were meant to be a probably me, <laughs> and and you were apparently excluded from his campaign party. I was talk about that. Yes, yeah, so I I and another reporter, David Friedlander, uh, for New York Magazine, were barred from the Eric Adams election night party. You know, th- this is the I, I've covered election night parties for almost a decade now. And I've never been barred from one. And, and I include Donald Trump on that list. I, in 2016, attended uh, and covered two Donald Trump campaign, uh, you know, election night parties. And, and, you know, despite Trump vilifying the media, I was readily allowed to enter, as, as were all reporters. I was not aware of any reporter being turned away. Though I know later Trump would bar reporters from rallies, but of course he's Donald Trump. That that's a standard that no one wants to be held to, right? So this was shocking. You know, I had RSVP'd. Uh, we were told it was invite only, and we were not on the list. And they just kept saying that. We looked very perplexed and annoyed, but there was no choice. It's their party. It was a, pri- a private venue. And we were turned away. So we ended up going to the Garcia event because it was close by. Um, but yeah, it was very shocking. It was very interesting. I, I think Adams, you know, is a mayor, as I just wrote, actually, you know, who entered the very strong working class coalition. And that's inarguable. You know, he did very well in black and Latino neighborhoods. And he is very cozy with the real estate industry and with Wall Street. So he has this very interesting, uh, strong coalition of big capital and also the working class. Um, and that's very hard to contend with. So he is really quite cocky at the moment. And, and I get why. I think I, I would certainly feel cocky if I had that coalition behind me. That being said, He's going to be in for a rude awakening when he's mayor because as Bill de Blasio found out, the honeymoon doesn't last very long. And I think unlike Bill de Blasio, I don't think Eric Adams is getting a honeymoon. You know, I remember people forget Bill de Blasio's election. People were very excited about it. It was definitely like a change election. The press coverage was very warm and glowing. And it really shifted once he entered City Hall and began to stumble. Eric Adams is entering on a bevy of, of various scandals that aren't going to go away. They're not going to vanish overnight. And the truth is, there'll just be more scrutiny and more digging. So he's not going to be able to keep barring reporters from City Hall and from events. It, it's not going to work for him. Um, and he's going to have a hard time controlling this me- this kind of media narrative, which does still matter as, as diminished as the media is we saw it with de Blasio, you know, relentless negative coverage really can wear you down and, and really sap your political capital. So, you know, I think one of the big questions is like, if Eric Adams wins, like, like, what does he want to do as mayor? I don't think we have like a great idea, to be honest. Um, right. He's kind of all over the place and his agenda is somewhat thin beyond public safety. So I think it's an open question how he's going to manage the city. So all of the front runners, except for 
Wiley, including Adams, Yang, and Garcia, and you've written about this, support the expansion of charter schools, which is a big concern among a lot of advocates and parents. Uh, about a week ago, you interviewed me and asked me why I thought that was and whether it reflected a larger trend somehow across the country, a pro-charter school trend. I said I didn't think so, but I, I couldn't really figure out. Yeah. Um, what do you think? I would I, I, I agree with you to some extent where some of it may have been just the stars aligned for the charter movement, right? You had politicians who'd either been in the firmament a long time, like Adams, or you had Yang and Garcia who were neophytes and were really looking for donor bases. And I do think it's very easy to espouse pro-charter school points when you're running for office in like a citywide race, not in like kind of a, a pro progressive you know, council, you know, or legislative level race where, where less people vote in a citywide race where you need money. It's very easy to be pro charter because those people will give you money, right? They cut big checks. They fund super PACs. Yang got a super PAC of charter money. Adams got one. I don't know if Garcia got a ton of charter money, but there's that certainly pressure to fundraise from them, right? I think there's the reality too that Trump being out of office certainly takes the onus off charters a little bit. They had a really rough four years where Betsy DeVos is the face of the charter school movement. I, I think having talked to charter advocates themselves, they are very thankful that DeVos is gone and Trump is gone because now they can try to return this to the bipartisan cause it once was, or bipartisan in the sense that it was like sort of corporate moderate Democrats and then Republicans, right? It was never like left Democrats. It's kind of this corporate moderate wing. And, and so I think that's part of it too, where charters are less toxic. Some, some politicians too don't want to take on the charter industry. They saw de Blasio attempt to fight one year now, seven years ago and get bludgeoned on TV with millions of dollars in advertising. And de Blasio really, as, as you said, shied away from charters after that and did not really take up the fight at all and did not crack down on them, really allowed them to proliferate in the city. Um, so I, I can imagine a Democrat making a calculation, at least in a campaign, that it doesn't pay to be explicitly anti-charter because these people will unload a lot of money against you. The interesting thing here is that, you know, the good news for charter critics, and I, I, you are a charter critic, I've been a charter critic myself, is that the state legislature really holds the key, the keys here. You know, this used to be a, ne a net negative for the city because the Republicans ran the Senate, and then you had like Michael Bloomberg cutting deals to get more charters. Now Democrats run the Senate, and the Democrats run the Assembly. So it's not clear there's going to be any effort in either chamber, certainly not in the state Senate, to raise the cap on charter schools, which is what Adams would probably like to see, is what Garcia would like to see. It just doesn't seem likely. I, I, don't, I don't see how you get a vote for it out of this current state Senate. So in terms of education policy, the state will be a check on the city. But certainly in the interim, right, on, on all this policy you've talked a lot about, where the Department of Education does have a say, it's very likely Eric Adams will, will have a laissez-faire attitude toward uh, charter schools. 
And whether that means more co-locations in public schools or more generous hand in paying for their rent, which is already required by law to a certain extent, and certainly not challenging them on accountability grounds in terms of pointing to their high teacher attrition rates, their high student attrition rates, all that seems to be um, more favorable towards charters with uh, an Eric Adams regime. I just wonder about the state legislature. I don't know the details of, of his connections. Certainly, he did very well in the Bronx, and there are a growing number of Bronx elected officials, especially in the assembly, that are favorable towards charters. So I'm, I am um, somewhat concerned about that. <clears throat> but um, one of the very, very little attention that was paid uh, um, to Eric Adams' education proposals was for his proposal for year-round schooling and a mandatory year-round schooling. The one thing that people all of a sudden paid attention to, to towards the end was that as part of that proposal, he wanted to have remote summer school classes that had hundreds of students um, per class. And Maya Wiley and some others made a campaign issue about that. Clearly, that was a very unpopular idea, as is mandatory year-round schooling. And I wonder if you've had any thought about whether he could actually push through those sorts of reforms. My sense is no. You know, it's funny, you know, the, the, the UFT is, is not a fan of, of Eric Adams. And, and I think with a lot of education reform, for better and, and for worse, Mm-hmm. or education change, I should say, you, you do need the buy-in of the teachers union. And, you know, Bill, Bill de Blasio had a fairly good relationship with UFT, though at times it could get heated. Um, you know, they, they worked basically, in, I think, in concert on a lot of issues. So I, I'm, I'm not convinced Eric Adams will be able to muster uh, you know, schooling year round. I think that, that that would be a very big step and the union would probably have real opposition to it. And, you know, Adam, you know, Adams, if he wins, right. And, and he wins the RCV calculation, it, it's not going to be an overwhelming mandate. It's going to be a win. But if you look at these election results, just take the first place votes, you know, Adams is in first place but he's not even winning at the level de Blasio was in 2013. So, you know, his coalition is big and it's some, and, and it's broad to an extent, but, it, but it, it also doesn't include a lot of the city. And well, there also were a hell of a lot more candidates this time around. So you can't really compare the races one to yeah, one 20, that way. And, and Eric Adams is going to think he has a tremendous mandate, whether or not yes. he does. And he seemed to be acting already last night that he had that mandate. Yes, he, he will think he does. But the question is, will other interest groups react the same way? Right. And I think right. that that's that's the question. And, and some may and some may not. So, uh, you know, he he, you know, like de Blasio, he's an untested manager. De Blasio was never a manager. Eric Adams had a ceremonial office for eight years. Now he's going, if he wins, managing the biggest city in America. Easier said than done. So I, I think with a lot of these these thornier issues, right, it, it may be more challenging than it seems, especially when it's not an issue that has the broad-based popularity of like universal pre-K, where 
everyone agreed they wanted this. It was merely a mm -hmm. question of how do you do it? And how do you fund it? Um, and that was the fight in 2014. This, these sorts of education issues, um, he's going to have to really put a lot of political capital into it. Will he do that? Does he want to do that? Or does he want to focus on other things? Right. Well, yesterday you tweeted, quote, a charismatic, populist, unabashedly left candidate can absolutely get elected mayor of New York City, but today will not be that day. A lot of things did go Maya Wiley's way, especially at, uh, towards the end of the campaign. The two other major progressive candidates had campaign meltdowns, a stringer because of accusations of sexual harassment that happened years ago, and Diane Morales, her campaign imploded because of staffing issues and dissension within the campaign that nobody could have necessarily predicted. So if Maya Wiley uh, did not capitalize on that, um, why not? Um, what did she do wrong, do you think? Maya Wiley was really fighting from behind, you know, fr from from the get-go because she didn't have a, an elected perch to work from. She's not well known. She's not particularly charismatic. I mean, I mean, this is not something one can learn or adapt to, right? I AOC. disagree with that. I mean, I'm I'm very charmed by her personally. I think she is charismatic. She's beautiful. She's smart. She's articulate. She was really good in the debates. And uh, she, you know, people who know her or saw her in person thought she had that charisma or has that charisma. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think with I think her campaign's messaging was a bit muddled at times where she wasn't quite sure how left she wanted to be. Uh, you know, she definitely is, you know, very telegenic. You know, she's been on MSNBC as a pundit. Um, but, but, you know, she didn't have the level of stature, you know, some like a Jamani Williams would have had or an AOC. So I think you're, you're just starting from, from the la that lack of star power. And, you know, you, you need, I think you need some ability to cross over with left leaning, but more, more moderate Democrats in Manhattan. I think something you see from this race, which is very interesting is the split amongst left leaning Democrats in Manhattan and then kind of Democrats in the gentrifying belts in Brooklyn where Wiley does very well, but then Garcia does extremely well in Manhattan. You know, some of that is the New York Times endorsement. Some of that too is being able to, to thread a needle that's not easy to thread in uniting these coalitions. You know, Bill de Blasio did it, but it is easier said than done. So I, I think her, her campaign, you know, for a long time struggled to take off. She did benefit from Stringer having the allegations and then Morales imploding. Morales was a deeply flawed candidate, but I, I did think had a lot of personal charisma and was really drawing a lot of these votes in gentrifying areas, you know, from these sort of young progressives that she would have probably held on to for her campaign had it not imploded. So Wiley did benefit from that. I do think she would have done better at the Times endorsement. The Times endorsement clearly boosted Garcia and it clearly hurt Wiley not getting it. And she needed a road into these Manhattan Democrats to counter Eric Adams. And right now you see on the map of the results, you see a real split between the progressives of Manhattan and then the progressives of Brooklyn. Obviously there are ideological differences, um, but also 
differences of kind of approach and wealth and, and things like that. So, you know, bridging that divide was hard. And I think Garcia did have certain inroads to kind of her professional background into maybe those Manhattan Democrats were more into technocratic uh, competence or the appearance of technocratic competence, right? You know, right. one one was an executive, one was a lawyer. That that was a difference. So Wiley was always going to have a hard, hard time overtaking Adams and getting those working class black votes was always going to be a struggle. So Adams has been around for a very long time and has a very strong base simply because of, you know, him being around as a public figure for a very long time and gaining respect among community members for that reason. I wonder if, you know, both the Donald Trump, you know, nightmare and the COVID uh, um, pandemic made people a little bit wary of ideology. I don't know. I think I, I know a lot of people who really did favor uh, Garcia, not because of her positions on any specific issue, but she seemed to have a basic level of competence that transcends ideology. I don't know whether that's true or not. Uh, you know, I haven't looked strong enough in her re record, but that's the image that she projected. And, and I seemed, I, it seemed to appeal to a lot of people. It did. And there's no doubt we're still in a time of crisis. We're seeing as we are nationwide a rise in murders and shootings. We're still recovering from the pandemic. There is a sense of insecurity and managers have more appeal and people may be less willing to take a risk on ideology. And certainly Kathleen Garcia did not run as a progressive, but she won progressive votes. The Upper West Side, you know, bastion of, of kind of this, you know, liberalism we think about was all, all in on Garcia. And I think when you see the RCV tabulation, places where Garcia didn't finish first, especially in Brownstone, Brooklyn, another place known for its progressivism, you will see Garcia do well. I think she will take a lot of votes in, in, in these kinds of areas. So I, I do think that's was, true. She was Yang's, Yang's explicit number two. So it would be interesting to see how many of the people who voted for Yang actually did put her number two. Yes. Some people claiming last night that that would put her over to the top in and of itself, but I don't think that's true. It'll it'll improve her standing, put her over the top over Eric Adams. I, I'm not convinced. Okay. I do think she will be pulling Asian votes from uh, from Yang Yang's ballot when he's eliminated. And she'll be potentially perhaps pulling some white moderate votes off of Yang's ballot. She'll probably be pulling votes off of Sean Donovan and Ray McGuire's ballots. So there's certainly a road for Garcia to make this closer. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a road for her to win. And I don't know if there's a road for Wiley to win either. You know, Wiley will be getting second place votes from Adams voters out in you know more working class areas. Uh, that are black, but is that enough? You know, my sense is no. So I really want to get to your book on Cuomo, which you just uh, released yesterday, or the publisher yes. just released yesterday, and it comes at an incredibly opportune time. I think you're really lucky with that. Cuomo was a very respected, but not a very popular governor. In fact, he's been disliked by many who knew him, autocratic supported by the hedge funders, strongly against taxing the rich and allied with the charter school corporate reform crowd. But then the pandemic hit and all of a sudden he was having these great press conferences that were 
you know, televised nationally as well as in New York City, seem to be in control of the situation amid one of the largest crises the state and city has ever faced. His popularity just took off both within the state, at the city, and nationwide. And then his reputation fell again, lower than ever before because of several scandals. The rise and fall was so dramatic, it was something like a Greek myth. My first question is this. At what point in this trajectory did you start writing your book? I started writing the book around December of 2020 when I was approached by my publisher or books about doing it. And I'd been thinking about it before then, and I'd been reporting on Cuomo during the pandemic, you know, since the very beginning, reporting critically on him. So I had these thoughts for a long time and really seen how he failed the state in, you know, in how he downplayed COVID initially and how he was slow to shut the city down. And then later, his imposition of this austerity regime that really hurt social services and, and public universities and even public schools in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the narrative of Cuomo COVID conqueror never made any sense to me. And I was always through my articles trying to show people that no New York was not successful in taming this. And a lot of people died and it was not that Cuomo is the sole reason all these people died. I would never argue that it's just that Cuomo fundamentally failed to prevent any kind of mass death and there were concrete steps that could have been taken to save lives that were not taken and then Cuomo's um, unwillingness to do more in the aftermath to help people you know really led to even more suffering and I, I wanted to do this in book form the, the Cuomo memoir had come out last year. To me, it was utter propaganda. I read it and I thought it was important to counter that in a real way. So um, there are two you know, major scandals that erupted at least um, in the last few months. One about the nursing homes that he suppressed negative data for how many people died in nursing homes possibly as a result of the fact that they had this policy that they sent back uh, uh, sick elderly people to nursing homes before they were cured of COVID uh, with the rationale, which doesn't seem crazy to me, that the hospitals were truly overwhelmed and they needed someplace to to put these people. And then the other was a rash of of sexual harassment um, allegations that that came out um, even more recently. Um, what are his chances, do you think, that he will either be impeached or he will not run again? The chances at this point seem low for both. The Assembly is slow walking this and doing as little as they can to impeach, but I'll depend on the allegations that, and if they're substantiated by the State Attorney General's report, Cuomo's up for re-election next year, so it's possible the state legislature may just decide with a year to go, it, it's not worth impeaching him. I think Cuomo absolutely wants to run again. He has a craving for power and he's fundraising for it. Will he win is an open question. It's going to depend on what Democrat runs against him. If it's a strong Democrat, he can lose. If it's a weak Democrat, he'll win. And who but, would be a strong Democrat in your view? In my in my view, it'd be Tish James, the Attorney General. 
She's a statewide elected official. She's black. She's from New York City. This is a recipe for success. You need to win in New York City. You need to win in Brooklyn and Queens against Cuomo. And you need to join black voters with white progressives, with upstate voters who dislike Cuomo in this coalition. And Cynthia Nixon and Zephyr Teachout could not do this. They lacked the money, the resources, the name recognition, the inroads into communities of color. James is not that. She was a former city council member, the public advocate. She's well known to New York voters and she would be formidable if she decided to do it. The question is, will she do it? Will she want to do it? Will she want to stand up to Cuomo in that way? And I don't know. I don't know. But I do think it'd be hers to lose if she took it seriously and fundraised for it. She's in a funny position, though, because there is this report that's supposed to come out from her office. So she could possibly see that as, you know, potentially seen as conflict of interest. The report that her office, the AG's office, is 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 working on, that has to do with the sexual harassment allegations and not the nursing home allegations. Is that right? Yes. Um, right now, you know, James initially released a report that substantiated what many observers and journalists suspected was that Cuomo was undercounting deaths in nursing homes. And now we're waiting on a report on the sexual harassment allegations. There's about a dozen of them against Cuomo of varying degrees of severity. And so she will either substantiate them or not. Now to the question of a conflict of interest, sure. Um, you release a report and then six months later, eight months later, you run against the person. People will think that or are free to think that. The issue is, unfortunately, that's the reality of politics. Andrew Cuomo was attorney general of New York State. He was investigating Elliot Spitzer, his political rival, and, and may have challenged him had Spitzer not resigned. David Patterson was being investigated by Attorney General Andrew Cuomo, being pressured by Cuomo. And Cuomo was readying to run against David Patterson, viewing him as a weak governor. And had Patterson not stepped aside, you might have had a very bloody primary on your hands. So Cuomo himself highly politicized the Attorney General's office. James hasn't really done that. But if anyone is going to accuse someone of politicizing an AG's office, it can't be Andrew Cuomo because that's what he does. He mixes politics and government. That's his MO. Right. Um, but he'll, so he'll do it anyway. I mean, whether or not it's fair, um, he will. I mean, I can't see him not saying, look, this, you know, if she's a candidate for office and her report, we don't know when it will come out. It may not even be six months before the election. It might be, um, you know, even more close to that date. So I do think it puts her in a in a difficult position. Um, now that we're talking about Cuomo, I mean, one of the, high, you know, in, incredibly dramatic and unfortunate um, realities of living in New York City um, on, on when Mayor de Blasio was mayor is his terrible relationship with Cuomo, which was really further exposed and, and I think exacerbated during the COVID crisis because they would have like competing press conferences and there was like 
you know, who would do it first and then who would do it second and then what would each of them say about the other? And they never could seem to get it together on anything. So de Blasio would announce one set of precautions for COVID and then Cuomo would come in and, and, and step all over him. And, you know, it was, it's, it's always unseemly and distressing for, for people who live in New York City, um, especially since they're both Democrats, especially since they, you know, they should be getting along for the, for the, for the, for, for the you know, for the sake of the city. But during the COVID crisis, it was especially upsetting, I think, to a lot of people. How do you think uh, if, if Eric Adams is elected mayor, will he get along better with Cuomo or how, what, what, what does that relationship look like? Excellent question. No one really knows. Eric Adams, on one hand, would profile as a Cuomo Democrat. On the other hand, he was never a Cuomo Democrat. Uh, he's an Eric Adams Democrat, first and foremost, which means he's unpredictable. And he could very easily clash with Cuomo as much as de Blasio did. He could just as easily be an ally. I think Adams will be harder to push around than de Blasio in a lot of ways. And you know, Adams projects toughness. He's a former cop. He has won with his own working class coalition or, or might win. So I, I could see Cuomo in his diminished state uh, being less willing or able to punch at Adams, particularly since Cuomo's billionaire donors supported Adams. Daniel Loeb, the, the charter school, um, you know, a patron yeah. funded the super PAC for Adams. So that's like an interesting dynamic where these donors do not really like the Blasio, but they were, they're fine with Adams. It's very hard to read this dynamic right now and what it would look like. It, it could be productive for the city. It could not be. These are two men who are each in their own ways, unpredictable and um, unafraid to engage in political machinations. So it'll be different. It'll, it'll be different than the Blasio Cuomo, but what that difference is, I'm not really sure. Well, thank you, Ross. I really appreciate you being with us today. I know you're incredibly busy. You write for so many publications and you must have been up really late last night. So I do appreciate it um, for joining me today on Talk Out of School. And good luck on your book, The Prince Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus, The Fall of New York. I'll put the link to the book and also how to su subscribe to your really good newsletter in the resources section of the podcast. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. This is Leonie Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio. Our show is available as a podcast if you missed the live version. If you hear it through Apple, please leave a review. Also, please consider becoming a member of WBAI or as a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School, by calling 212-209-2950. You can also log into buddy.wbai.org. We really need the support of listeners to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that doesn't run ads. I'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful and be safe, and thanks so much for listening. Close up your books, get out of your seat Down the halls and into the street Up to the corner and round the bend Right to the juke joint you go in Drop the coin right into the slot You gotta hear something that's really hot With the one you love you